Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Great to be here today, as always. Uh, Super excited about today's show. We have the author of a book called What It's Like to Be a Dog with us, Gregory Burns, is on the phone with us from the East Coast. Gregory, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, So this is uh, right up, I mean... I've talked to so many fascinating people about so many different types of topics. My um, degree is in animal science, so I especially love these these science-related topics and have talked with um, a number of really brilliant people over the years. And your research is super exciting about uh, training dogs to... um, lay quietly in an MRI scanner so that you can... Uh, you know, look at the brain activity during different um, different tasks or, you know, having them smell. We'll get into more detail about exactly what you did and really trying to understand, you know, what is it like to be a dog and, and other animals as well? You talk about sea lions, dolphins, um, lots of different types of animals in your book. So the book is called What It's Like to Be a Dog. And the author is Gregory Burns, and it is available now. I think it was released yesterday. Is that right? That is right. Okay. So, um, this started, you say in the book that this whole idea started with this MRI, and you were specialized in the use of MRI to study how the human brain makes decisions before your work with animals. Is that right? That's right. I'm a human-trained neuroscientist who studies humans for most of my career. Okay. And then you something about the dog who helped um, capture bin Laden. You were like, well, if they can train a dog to jump out of a helicopter and do that, I could probably train a dog to go into an MRI scanner, and the rest is history. Uh. Yeah, I, I, I feel pretty confident that I'm probably the only person who reacted to the Bin Laden mission that way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so most of my career uh, I've spent using MRI to study how the human brain responds to various incentives, punishments, risk, reward, how we make decisions, um, and all sorts of things that later became a field known as neuroeconomics of the brain and how that relates to decision-making. Um, and then, you know, then, you know, I became aware of what military working dogs can do, you know, largely because of all the publicity surrounding the mission. And, you know, obviously people know what these dogs can do. Just, I had not really paid much attention to it, even though I've been a dog person my whole life, grew up with dogs, and always had multiple dogs my house. Um, and I think kind of what happened was I had actually lost my favorite dog the year before, who was a, a pug named Newton. And, you know, he just he passed away. He was almost 15, so he lived a good life. And, 
you know, I think probably in the back of my mind, I'd always been wondering, you know, did he feel anything like I felt towards him? Did he reciprocate in any way, you know, the feelings that, that you know, we humans have for the dogs, or is it just about the food, really? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, after, you know, seeing these pictures of, of military dogs jumping out of helicopters, then it was kind of like the light bulb went off in my head, and it's like, hmm. Well, helicopters are pretty noisy. MRIs are pretty noisy. You know, if a dog can get used to that, why couldn't a dog just get used to being in an MRI? And so we could use the same techniques we use in humans to study how a dog's brain works um, without sedation or any restraints, um, and then, you know, start to do what we call modern cognitive neuroscience. Mm. And the the way that you you know, had this structured, like you just mentioned, I think it's worth pointing out, is that these dogs were trained um, to be in an MRI in the same way that a human would be, in the sense that they are not sedated, not restrained. They they can leave, you know, at any time. So they're, like, totally voluntarily in it. And that was, uh, you know, I think that's good good for people to be clear about as far as all of this work goes, that they were really trained step by step by step over the course of a, you know, fair amount of time to, you know, rest their chin in this little holder and and deal with the sound and all that kind of stuff. Um, I just wanted to ask, like, what, how does an MRI scanner work? Because I'm, I, you know, I've seen like, um, oh, here's, here's like the image, the imagery that comes out of an MRI, but it's not an X-ray at all. I right. mean, is that something that can be explained in a way that, you know, I mean, I, you, you go into it a little bit in what I read so far, and it's like, you know, the magnets and the, and I'm just kind of like, but I don't, I'm still not grasping how that turns into an image. Um, sure. Well, I can, I'll do my best um, at it. Um, so the way MRI works is totally unlike any other medical imaging modality. It does not use x-rays. It does not use, uh, radiation in the sense that that we normally think about it. Um, and it doesn't even need to use injections of any contrast material. Sometimes that's used in clinical settings. What MRI is based on is the fact that most of our bodies are comprised of mostly water for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and the key thing is that water molecules contain a hydrogen atom, H2O, mm-hmm. right? Well, there are hydrogen atoms in other parts of the body as well. Probably for the brain, the most important is the fact that anything that's like a fatty substance contains lots of hydrogen in it. Okay. And when you put a molecule or an atom specifically like hydrogen in a magnetic field, what it does is it it starts to vibrate. It starts to wobble. Um, And the stronger the magnetic field, the faster it wobbles. And you can use that because these little protons are wobbling. They act as like little um, radio transmitters. It turns out when you put them in a a strong enough field, they emit signals in, in the radio frequency, literally like the FM uh, frequency band on, on your car radio. And so that's really what MRI is doing is it's making all these hydrogen atoms line up with a big magnet. 
field and they're vibrating, which is what the R in MRI stands for, resonance. And we use like a simple antenna to, to listen to the signals coming back from hydrogen atoms. And the fact that a hydrogen atom in a water molecule vibrates a little bit differently than a hydrogen atom in a fat or a protein is what lets us make the images because protons behave a little bit differently based on the molecule that they're in. So that's that's the simple explanation of wow. it. It's just based on magnetic fields and radio waves for the most part. That's just incredible. It's like who came up with it? I mean, you, you probably know specifically. It, I mean, it, it is incredible. Oh. And, and, and then there were two Nobel Prizes awarded yeah. over the years for the discovery of this. First for the, the phenomena of magnetic resonance and then uh, later in the 70s for the people who actually were able to turn it into an imaging device. Mm, right. Yeah. yeah, incredible. Blows so, my mind. But the great thing about MRI is because it does not use radiation like x-rays or CT scans, yeah. um, there's really no risk to the person or subject going in the machine. So you can go in as many times as as you want, mm. no radiation exposure, so it's very safe. Yeah, and which is why you know I feel very comfortable using it on, in dogs too. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that um, it's interesting that you can you can be in there and have have the the hydrogen in the molecules of your body be like you know, and you're like, oh, I don't, you know, nothing's happening. But, like, the resonance part of it, it's interesting that you don't feel that or that it does, like, you know, because it's causing this vibration or, you know, uh, causing causing you to, you know, molecules within your body to move in a certain way, right? And then, but you're not like, whoa, you know, that kind of feeling. Well, it. yeah, I mean, they, they vibrate at such a high frequency you wouldn't sense it, but yeah. put it another way. What happens is your body itself becomes magnetized as, you know, when you go in the strong magnet, but we hmm. don't have any sensation of that either. Right. Hmm. Cool. Well, thank you so, for, that was a great explanation. I totally followed that, and I hope uh, you guys listening were able to to get a handle on that, because I was like, oh, MRI, like, yeah, MRI. I'm like, well, wait a minute, I actually have no idea how, how it actually works, because it's not, it's not an x-ray. Well, there's a little, to, so... To get kind of to the, the use of it for trying to understand what dogs are thinking and feeling, there's one other important piece of information because because the type of scan I described is, is more like a clinical scan that you, know, you would get if you had to go to the doctor. Uh-huh. What we do is a, a little variation of that, which is to take images very quickly and repeatedly. So we take images of a brain and a human uh, for these types of experiments about once every two seconds and the dog actually every second because they have a smaller brain. Mm-hmm. And we're actually, what we're looking for there is not just a picture, but we're looking at how the blood flow changes to different parts of the brain. Um, and that's based on the fact that when a particular part of the brain is active, the neurons are firing, more blood flow goes to that area, and mm-hmm. we can pick that up. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's basically how we kind of deconstruct the brain and how that relates to what you know, a person or an animal yeah, I know you said. I thought that was really fascinating because you said that when a when a neuron fires, the um, blood flow increases around it so that it basically can recharge. Right. Yeah. 
So are you making like kind of a video by taking those like multiple images in a row or do you then put them together to see how how a signal may travel or or move? Yeah, that is exactly what it is. Okay. So if, if a, a regular MRI is like a photograph, then what we're doing is a movie sequence. Yeah. And, and then the analysis comes after the fact where we have to kind of sync up the timelines of the timeline of the images that we get from the brain with the timeline of what actually happened in a particular experiment. Yeah. So when we started this project, we started with really simple experiments to do to make sure that the technique worked. And the very first one we, we did was we taught dogs that one hand signal made one hand up meant to get a treat. And then another hand signal, actually two hands raised up, meant no treat. And so we just, you know, have have the, the owners giving these hand signals to the dogs, their dogs while they're in the scanner, and then we would give them treats at the appropriate time. And then we'd have someone else in the scanner room pressing a little button box that, that time-stamped every event that went to a different computer. And then we could sync all this up after the fact and mm-hmm. figure out what parts of the brain became more active when one hand signal came on versus another. Yeah. And you said it's called the caudate nucleus. Right. The structure so, that responds to anticipation of something that we like. And we have this as well f- for us. The examples you gave were food, money, and music. I thought it was interesting that music was one of the three. And that the dog's caudate nucleus responds similarly to the hand signals you were just mentioning in anticipation of treats. And I wanted to ask you something that I have said. So my expertise is in dog training and behavior. Um, In addition to doing this radio show, I work with people in the Seattle area and um, also do phone consults for people with behavioral challenges or just wanting to learn to communicate with their dogs. And um, we have this toy that is uh, three bottles um, with holes drilled through them and, um, you know, sort of uh, strung through a, a dowel and the bottles spin around the dowel. And there's a cap on the bottles with a, a hole probably about the size of a penny. And you put treats in the bottles and through a training process, you teach the dog to spin, you know, hit the bottle ultimately with their paw. Um, and then it, this thing spins around. And then as it slows down, the treats kind of fall down to the cap when it's upside down. And then a treat may fall out. Several treats may fall out. No treat may fall out just based off of the luck of, you know, how it spun and whatever, right? And how the treats hit the opening. And it's cool because as far as all these, and I'm sure you're aware of this whole market category now of dog puzzles and toys, one of the challenges that people have is that they get one and then, you know, the dog learns it and then it's like, well, like that's not really challenge. I'm big on burning mental energy in dogs as far as behavior So they need jobs to do and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I'll probably talk a little bit more about that. Um, But so they kind of like the dog learns it and then it's like, well, now it's not really challenging anymore because the dog just, you know, flip the switch and slide the thing and boom, 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 get the treats over. All right. You're not tired. You were tired when you were learning how to do it, but then it kind of has an expiration date. Well, this one keeps them engaged. And I have said with no expertise in neuroscience, (laughs) um, I bet that the same part of the brain, you know, quote unquote, lights up 
in dogs when they're playing the spinner toy as does in people um, doing slot machines. Because yep. it's like, am I going to get, am I going to get anything? And if I do, is it going to be little or is it going to be big? And it keeps them really like, you know, our cattle dogs just like spin the thing and, they, you know, our male especially just like watches it go around and around and around and like waiting, 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 waiting. Treat comes out, he eats it, nothing comes out, he spins it again, watches it round, you know. So it's kind of like I think of a person as a slot machine. Yeah, it, it is. It's exactly the same region. Um, you know, and it's funny you mentioned the slot machines because when we do these, these types of experiments in humans, they're almost always some kind of gambling task, for lack of a better We don't call them gambling. <laughs> yeah, tasks, but, yeah. Uh, we don't. It's against the law to run a casino at a university, but they're, um, but but people are making decisions, and then based on those decisions, they might get kind of different outcomes and different payoffs. But it's always the same structure that seems to be involved. This caudate nucleus. Um, it 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 also is the region that has the highest density of dopamine receptors in the oh. brain, and you know it used hmm. to be thought that dopamine was kind of this pleasure chemical of the brain, that it signals things that we like. But it's actually much more interesting and complex than that. Um, dopamine is particularly important, really, in the anticipation of things, more, even more so than kind of the immediate pleasure. And the reason that's important for, for any animal is it's, it's anticipation of things that set you up for, for doing something. Um, you know, that's how, how you decide what to do. That's how a dog decides what to do is it's, it's anticipating a particular outcome, and this structure is, is critical for that, and that's why most yeah. of our experiments have focused on it, because by looking at it, we can get an understanding of, of what's important to the dog, what it's anticipating, what it likes more or less, or at least what it's anticipating more or less, and it really tells us a lot about the internal state of the dog that you might not necessarily know from, from outward appearances, right. because in our experiments, they're not doing anything. They're just lying in the scanner. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. The word that comes to me is motivation. Like, what is motivating would be the anticipation of this or that. Like, well, I am not going to do that because if I do that, I would anticipate some sort of, you know, natural consequence. So you learn, you know not to do this or not to do that. Well, that didn't work well for me, so I'm not going to do that again. And then if the flip side of it is, oh, man, when I, every time I do that, this happens. So I'm anticipating, you know, whether it's positive or negative. Um, it's a motivation. Right. Motivation and it, factor, yeah. it is clearly related to motivation, although um, because we do our experiments ethically and we only use positive reinforcements, we don't really have any data on on the negative side of things. So, um, you know, obviously you can be motivated by avoiding something you don't like, um, which can be highly motivating, but, you know, we're not studying that domain of things in our experiments with the dog. Right. It happens in nature, but it's hard to set up in a science and justify it. You know, it is, so, yeah. and the whole kind of ethos of, of our project is this is a fun activity for the dog, so everything in the training process is to, sure. you know, make this machine fun. Right. Um, some of the owners call it the cookie machine or the treat machine. Right. Um, but, it's, yeah, it's, it's fun, so yeah. it's all positive. Yeah. So you talk about, so it, the book at the, you know, as you're 
flipping through the pages to get to the start of the introduction. It says for Callie. And Callie is the first dog, your dog, who you taught to um, be in an MRI scanner and actually successfully scan. Yeah. So um, one of the things, so you, she was very, uh, very curious, um, loved to learn new things. You trained her to go into the MRI. Um, and you talked a little bit about her, um, you know, she wasn't necessarily like an easy dog. Like you had this, you know, these dogs who you describe who are just like super easy and chill, you know, what the, just. And then you had another group that was a little more, um, had a little more going on, maybe had some uh, challenges with being reactive to this or that in their environment or who weren't um, super cuddly or, or, you know, obviously so like compared to the other group and that Callie was kind of, you know, independent and, um, and, and a little maybe more challenging. And I'm curious to know because you, you know, had this dog and then you're like, Hmm, I'm going to do this with you. Did you, did you notice in your experience with your dog as you're going through all of this training with her, did you notice that work, the opportunity to work with you and where you're um, intentionally engaging her brain in a way that's asking her to learn, figure things out, problem solve, which doesn't happen necessarily unless we present the dog with the opportunity because they live with us and we, you know, they don't have to think about, well, how am I going to get my next meal? Did you notice that? there was a positive change in, in her general behavior once you started all this training versus prior to it? Yeah, so, well, that's a great question, and I think it's very complicated to, to answer. Um, so, you know, just to kind of paint the picture a little bit, so Callie, Callie was the replacement for the pug who had died the year before. So, um, and I did not want to get another pug because I, I just think I could, um, I don't know, the, the one who died was so special I just didn't want, I didn't think he was replaceable. So Nobody is really, right? Right. And so, you know, my wife went down to the uh, Atlanta Humane Society kind of with the mission of finding a dog who was as opposite a pug as she could find. Right. So, so Callie... She found Callie, who is a little black terrier mix of some sort. Um, and so she is the anti-pug, as we called her. And so she had a very different personality and, and temperament from the get-go, um, in part because of her terrierness. Um, I think contributes a lot to her general curiosity and, and willingness to, to stick her nose into anything. Um, and so that helped, but it didn't necessarily endear her to me initially. Um, not, you know, not a lap dog, not a cuddly dog by any stretch. Um, kind of, you know, on her own mission most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah, she's got her own agenda. Yeah. yeah. Um, mostly hunting small animals. Mm-hmm. To be honest, is what her, her default mission is 
was and still is. Yeah. Given the chance. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't immediately obvious to me that she would be a good candidate for this project. Um, and, and the way it started was I, you know, worked with a dog trainer that I knew to kind of, you know, do this by trial and error, you know, teach dogs. And so we kind of came to the juncture. It's like, okay, well, who's going to be the first subject? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't to the state that we could just advertise for it. Cause we, at that point, we didn't really know what we were doing or how we would train the dogs for this. And, um, you know, Callie was not particularly obedient. You know, she didn't, I mean, she's still not, you know, it's not a dog that I would let off leash anywhere, uh, except the MRI machine. Uh, but this curiosity seemed to work in her favor where she really liked doing these, these tasks. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know if it was that she necessarily changed or maybe I changed, um, because most of my previous relationships with, with dogs have been fairly passive in the sense that, you know, I hadn't had dogs that we did many activities together. Um, some dogs I could take hiking. Other dogs, you know, could go hiking but only on a leash. But I didn't compete in anything like agility or anything like that. Um, so the relationship was fairly passive. Mm-hmm. Except with Callie, it was a much more active relationship because now we were working together towards this particular goal. Um, so the answer to your question is certainly our relationship changed, uh, but that could be as much her as me, I would say. Yeah. Fair answer. Right. Yeah, there is a lot to it for sure. One of the, one of the phenomenons that I guarantee, well, no, I don't guarantee, but I say if I had to guarantee anything with dogs, which I don't because they're living animals, you know, they are their own beings. But if I had to guarantee something really predictable in in the realm of, of, you know, training and behavior, it would be that engaging a dog's brain in a really constructive way, you know, asking them to focus their energy through their mind and problem solve and, and you know, give them an opportunity to really try to figure something out, engage their brain, has a predictable overall calming grounding effect on the dog um, as you know one of the things that I if I had to bank on anything that would be probably it um, and I so encourage people you know dogs and people have been living together for last I checked which was with Dr. Brian Hare the most uh, widely accepted number in science is 40,000 years that we've been living together and the nature of our relationship really has been working together until very recently. And I say all the time on the show, there is an unemployment epidemic in dogs in modern times and that they really still are designed to, to do a job, you know, and the, the job description would depend on the dog's genetics and personality for sure. You know, you're not going to be dropping your pug out of a helicopter to go and capture bin Laden, right? You're going to use a Malinois or a shepherd for that. Um, But it doesn't mean that they're not capable of working. And there's variation as much as, you know, um, you know, between different people as far as what individuals are good at or not. So I was just really curious. You know, it sounds like you really got to know your dog in a way that was different for you through the work that you did together. And I bet that um, it had a positive impact on her 
as her own individual as well, because I've seen it so much. I was curious to hear if you noticed, like, oh, wow, look at, like, since we've been doing this training, she's calmer, or just seems more grounded, or, you know, I don't know. Well, I think so, but, but I also think that it's something that atrophies very quickly. So Callie does not participate too much in the experiments anymore, mm-hmm. um, in part because we now have many, many dogs who are trained for the MRI. Mm-hmm. And she's also on the small side, so she weighs about 25 pounds, so her brain is relatively smaller mm-hmm. target to see stuff in. Mm-hmm. And plus, she was she's not the best subject either. You know, mm-hmm. Even though she was the first, we, we subsequently found dogs who were totally chill in the scanner and, and would be just happy to fall asleep in it. Right. Now. Uh, she's not that dog, so she, she, she's a little bit of a wiggler. Um, but what I've noticed is when she does come in to work with me and we are doing things, um, she does behave differently when we get home. I mean, she's much, she sticks with me mm-hmm. around the house. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like that, you know, those sessions do strengthen our bond with each other. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as opposed to days when she's just staying at home, then she might, you know, follow my wife around her. It's kind of where, the, where she goes where the action is. Right. Best way to describe it. Yeah. How old is she now? Uh, she just turned eight. We think. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to take a uh, quick break and listen to um, some of the supporters of the show. And when we come back, we'll be talking more with Gregory Burns, who's the author of a new book, "What It's Like to Be a Dog and Other Adventures in Animal Neuroscience." Super fascinating stuff. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country, but if you live in Western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to New Pro Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, September 10th, it's Talk With Your Animals Sunday with gifted animal communicator, medium, and Reiki master Darcy Pariso. Darcy can help you talk with and learn about your animal friends, or she can help you connect with your animal or human loved ones on the other side. So plan to give us a call on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? 
Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me, host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Alternative Talk 1150. It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And we're back talking with Gregory Burns, the author of a new book titled What It's Like to Be a Dog and Other Adventures in Animal Neuroscience. Gregory, welcome back. Good to be back. Okay, so um, so much to talk about. And I'm telling you, we're scratching the surface in this interview. Time just flew by, and you've just got to get the book. And it's super interesting stuff. Love it. And you talk about some other animals, uh, some other species as well. Dolphins and seals and all sorts of good stuff. Tasmanian devils. Um, okay, so now you had said um, in your, now you guys, so you are really like tip of the iceberg, like getting a dog into an MRI and then scanning their brain, amazing. Well, then you're like, okay, well, now we did that and we can do that. And so now, you know, what are some, how can we measure, you know, the dog's brain when this is happening or when that's happening or sort of, you know, measuring their responses to different things. Um, uh, the, what was that called? No, no, go, no, go. You know, the difference between, um, you know, responding to a cue and then touching something with their nose versus having this, the cue happen like a whistle and then, but then along with the whistle, the, the owner puts their arms up in an X and the dog learns that if the arms are up in an X, then it means don't do the thing, even though you're hearing the whistle. So you like, you get into all that details on that one. Now you mentioned during the break, there's a distinction for dogs between, and I am really curious to hear what you say about this praise versus food. What you got? Well, so after we got into the project and and we kind of did all the easy stuff, then, you know, we thought, well, let's kind of tackle the basic, it's almost an academic criticism of why dogs hang around us in the first place. Right. So, you know, there's just kind of this whole, I guess, kind of camp of people that would say, well, it's all just about the food. If the food wasn't around, they'd be out of there in a second. Uh, and that that is the entire dog-human relationship. So, I mean, my intuition said no, but um, now that we have this tool to look into what is essentially internal motivations of the dog, we set up an experiment to, to look at that. Mm-hmm. And so it was very simple. It was almost the same as the initial ones we did with hand signals. Um, we started running out of hand signals, so right. 
Right. Instead, we, we started resorting to gluing various toys on the ends of sticks that we would hold up in front of the dogs to see. Uh-huh. And in the praise versus food experiment, one object signaled that they would get a piece of food, and another object signaled that their owner would pop into view and say, good girl, something like that. Mm-hmm. So really simple. And we wanted to use the brain as, as itself as like a meter into which one of those two things that the dogs value more. Um, if it was food, it would show up one way, and if it was praise, it would show up the other. And what we found actually was that for the majority of dogs, both were equally activating of this structure, the caudate nucleus, which says that both are equally motivating to the dog, um, which was, frankly, was a surprise to me, kind of how equal it was. Some dog, a few of the dogs actually had a stronger response to the praise than the food itself. So that was, that was kind of, I think, the first finding that we had that kind of spoke in a very practical way um, to things that dogs like that go beyond food. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, it, I mean, it was right there. Dogs yeah. like to be praised. I mean, and I think the subjective experience for the dog is very much like humans. Like, we like to be praised, too. Right. Did you? And it doesn't sound like, so I would anticipate, just based off of my... Um, experiential um, interactions with dogs that some are more food motivated than others. Yep. So I would I would have predicted that there would be a huge individual variation, um, you know, between dogs as far as what's you know what's more motivating, food or praise or you know, and then also I think like well, so the you've just you've found you've measured that the same part of the brain lights up with both praise and food yep but then like well what happens so the brain lights up but then there's a whole there's a whole bunch of um like uh, chain reactions within the body that happen from there so would that then translate into this or that like well you know like you said i think value like they valued both equally but but how do you how do you link value and experience of value with with a part of a brain lighting up? Yeah, well, good question. So you're absolutely right. There there was a spectrum of responses. Mm-hmm. So I did say majority, I didn't say every dog. Yep, I heard that. Um, so there were a couple of dogs who their brain was really all about the food or the anticipation of food, and then there were I think four dogs who were more. In, in the praise category. Just, hmm. I mean, we literally just rank ordered the dog based on the brain response, you know, so we have like from praise to equal to food. Um, and then, so to link that though, to kind of get to this interpretation, you know, what we did was actually did a, a behavioral test. So we set up in our training facility, we set up a giant maze with baby gates was actually in the shape of a V. And so what we did was we put the owner in one arm of the V and a food bowl in the other arm. And so after we familiarized the dogs with this setup, then we released them at the at the point of the V and they had to choose. Mm-hmm. Do I go for the owner 
right. which just praise me, or do I go to the food bowl? Uh, and we did that 20 times for each dog. And what's interesting, there's lots of interesting things about that kind of test. Um, one of which the dogs are, ne- are never completely consistent. Most dogs will kind of sample back and forth. Um, okay. But the ratio is important because it, that kind of tells us their behavioral tendencies at that moment. And what we found was that that, link, that was linked to the amplitude of the brain response to these two things. Um, mm. So you kind of put all this together and you kind of get this picture that, okay, yes, this brain region is kind of signaling the intrinsic value or motivational value of food or praise to the dog in the scanner. And that predicts what they do outside of the scanner in a completely different environment. It's like tapping into their mm-hmm. their own kind of personal preferences, mm-hmm. if you will. So those were consistent. So when you went back and sort of double-checked and you're like, okay, well, your brain lit up way more with food, and then you put them in the V, and those individuals would tend towards the food more than their owner. So it was like, right. oh, that that lines up. Right, hmm. right. Cool. So, so interesting. Um, you talk a lot about, you know, the uh, frontal cortex and... Um, no, frontal lobe. Is that right? Yep. Did I say that? It's frontal cortex. Did I just make that up? No. Okay. I mean, those are frontal lobe. Ones. Okay, great. Yeah. I'm like, um, so language, right? And I, it just, so apart from communicating with each other, language lets us conduct an internal monologue. It rides on top of other domains, labeling other aspects of experience. And it seems to me like we humans, it's like, I feel like this, this whole idea of labeling, like, cause I've seen people do this, like, well, it's, a, I feel like it's a way of elevating art, or artificially elevating or giving one a sense of elevation anyway, not maybe truly elevating of labeling and somebody else like, oh, like that person is, you know, blah, 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 and blah, 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 like, I know about you, and therefore I'm above you. So this function of labeling and language. Um, and then also just how we relate to animals. It's like, oh, well, they don't, you know, language, language, language. And I'm like, well, there's verbal language, and then there's all body language and all of these other ways that we as animals and other animals communicate a lot. And so in in my work, working with people and dogs, teaching people how to, you know, essentially speak dog, quote unquote, is to get us in our bodies and aware of our posture and our action and our movement and, and our, um, you know, quality of energy that we're generating and all our, our, our tone and all of these things outside of the word. And, um, And then that's where I thought about Temple Grandin, which I mentioned during the break, um, because I just spent some time with her this last summer, because she says that her brain is a sensory-based processor, not a word-based processor. So the way that her brain actually functions, what she says is different, given her autism. Yep. So then how do we then generalize, you know, oh, humans versus animals when we have some humans who actually aren't word-based processors? 
There's well, like, there's this yeah. arrogance, and I know you agree with this because one of your whole points is like, hey, you know, animals have we're we're more alike than we think we may think generally as people, and their depth of experience and all this stuff is actually more similar to us than we might think. And so we need to look at how we're treating animals, right? So I know that's right. like real you're really passionate about that. So but it was yeah. just kind of like, well, what about her? Like she's being inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame this month. And she's not a verbal prost- like she's not a verbal person. That's not her her default. Yeah, but she, but she's not devoid of language either, right? She, you know, she can speak. She writes great books. Um, so that's you know not uh, she's not mute. In other words, so that's not I, I think a fair comparison. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what you said is it's important to underscore that when we talk about language, um, and specifically when you mention body language, that is more of a colloquialism. Um, and what we're talking about there is nonverbal communication, which is not necessarily the same as language in a, in a technical sense. Got so it. When we speak precisely about language, what most people are talking about is the fact that we humans have words which... Um, follow various rules of syntax and grammar. But probably most importantly is that words are symbols, meaning, which, which is remarkable when you think about it. It's like we have these utterances, and we can write them down now, too, and they're totally abstract. They are, for the most part, completely you know, distant from the things that they're referring to, and yet we know that they refer to these things or actions. Um, and so that's kind of the key thing about language that I think is very interesting and mm-hmm. where humans kind of unarguably differ from other animals that, that we, we know. Mm-hmm. So nobody has, I would say, convincingly demonstrated that other animals use language even close to how we use it. But then that creates an interesting paradox, especially with dogs, which is, that seemingly dogs understand some of the stuff that we tell them. Um, and so how is that? Because uh, they don't speak back to us, certainly. Um, and so this is kind of launched my lab and kind of a, a set of experiments to try to understand this. And, and to be honest, it's been extremely difficult um, because uh, you all, I'm sure, know about Chaser, the, the Border Collie, who's who has a vocabulary of a thousand words. I was waiting to say her name just in yeah. the next pause. Yeah, I talked with um, John Pilly on the show years ago. Blew my mind. Yeah. That book blew my mind. Yeah, so the you know the literature kind of has examples of dogs with these fabulous vocabularies, although, to be honest, there's not many. And the thing with Chaser, when, when Pilly wrote his book, was kind of suggesting that, you know, hey, maybe there's this untapped potential in lots of dogs. Um, but there haven't been many dogs like that, and I'm kind of of the opinion that Chaser's a bit of a freak, actually, Um, because, in part, perhaps because of genetics, or actually the Border Collie, and also the fact that Tilly had the time and wherewithal, you know, to spend hours and hours, you know, training her on his words um, uh, from a very young age, 
which most dogs are not exposed to that type of training, so it's not terribly surprising that they probably can't do that type of task. But here's what we did. We tried teaching what we called the chaser protocol to the dogs that are MRI trained. Um, and so what we did was we did a series of tasks where we, we just started with two objects that they've never seen before and, to, and told the owners to teach them the names of these two objects and then you know to go to them or nose them or, or do some action. And so the first thing that was surprising about this was how hard it was. You know, we thought this would be a piece of cake. You know, Chaser can do a thousand. All we're doing is two words here, two objects, two words. And it was a slog. You know, we almost had a mutiny. Um, people were tired of training this task. The dogs weren't doing it very well because they would think they were doing it well. But then when they would come in for training and we'd actually test the dogs, they would be at chance, you know, a coin flip. And more often than not, what was happening was that the owners were subconsciously cueing the dogs to the answers, you know. Mm. And, and as you know, dogs are famously good at picking up these nonverbal cues that we can't help ourselves sure. giving. When they can do that, and it's, it's so much easier than trying to figure out these arbitrary sounds coming out of our mouth. Um, but we eventually did get enough of the dogs to get above chance on this task, and then we took them to the scanner, and then we had, had the, the owners speak the words to them. And as a control for that, what we did was we had them speak um, essentially gibberish, words that they've never heard before. Uh Uh, And what we found was, unlike humans, which would typically show language areas being activated to words, we found the opposite in the dogs, where these gibberish words were more activating of of so-called language areas than the words themselves. And so this is interesting, and this kind of gets, to what I think you said earlier, which is is kind of the powerful effect of something novel. And it engages the dogs in such a way that they have to try to figure something out. So they're in the scanner, and now the dogs hear words they've been hearing now for six months, and then all of a sudden they hear some gibberish, and that kind of turns on the light. It's like, hmm, what is that? Right. It almost was like a, a became a study on familiarity versus unfamiliarity versus the actual. It it, it is, yeah. and and it just underscores the fact that you know, however dogs are kind of piecing together, you know, what we mean by things, they're doing it in a way that seems quite different than the way humans do it. And this is probably the only experiments that we've done where we've really found this striking difference. And I guess that's not too surprising considering, you know, know, how humans evolved and the relative brain sizes that dogs don't have the the neural real estate probably to do what we call symbolic processing like this. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're very much in the middle of trying to figure out how they understand us at all. Right. There's a lot of mystery involved, you know, and there's so much, I mean, you even mentioned the word intuition, which I appreciate as a scientist, you know, that it's on your radar because there's just so, you know, it's a challenge of science to be like, hey, you know, gosh, I wonder about this. And then how do we set this up in the context of science, you know, to, to try to measure it or get these answers that that my you know, that I'm questioning. Oh, 
what is that about? I don't know. Can we set it up and measure it and, you know, get information and all that kind of stuff? And, um, you know, I think like about Chaser, I think it was, I mean, she's a border collie. So, you know, I mean, that's your obvious choice. One of your obvious choices if you're going to do something like this. But I think your point to the time that it took, uh, you know, he really dedicated many years and hours in, 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 in accomplishing what he did. Um, and so I think just a function of that, well, gosh, if you took every dog on the planet and, and had a, not just a human put the time in, but a human that they, um, grew up with from puppyhood, because then there's, then there's uh, social motivation and, and the fact that he used play. Yeah. I mean, there's so many factors to it, but, um, there is, and there's kind of one thing that I think gets glossed over in this, and that dogs may not care about the names of things that much. It may not be that important, because it's, because if you think about it, the verbal commands that dogs seem to understand are for action, not so much for the names of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think that's probably true of most animals, that animals are action-oriented, um, and it's easier for them to link a sound with a particular action rather than a sound with a thing, which they may not care, you know, about whether one toy or not. Right. Um, it's not even clear to me, after studying this, that dogs really understand what their name is, other than when I hear that sound, I should look to whoever's saying it because something interesting is going to happen. Right. Well, it would bring up questions about identity and ego, probably. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And I mean, our dogs ha- end up with, you know, several different names just because of nicknames and they end up responding to all of them. Sure. You know, um, yeah, you talk about experiments about which is super interesting to me, self-control, um, you know, impulse control. I don't know. You know, one of the thing that I came as I was reading it, I'm like, is it really accurate to say that dogs aren't as good as self-control as people? Because, you know, <laughs> Just looking well, at my, how we behave, my, and no, uh, yeah, because lots of people are not don't have very good self control yeah. either. The, yeah. the difference is, for a dog who doesn't have good self control, it can be fatal. Sure, right. Uh, it's just like super, like oh, it's so interesting, and you know all this stuff. It's such, um, such an amazing. I can't even believe that we're at the end of the show. It's ridiculous that we have to stop now, but we do. Um, so. That leaves you, as you're listening, with getting the book. It's available as of yesterday. What It's Like to Be a Dog and Other Adventures in Animal Neuroscience by Gregory Burns, B-E-R-N-S. And he talks, um, you know, quite a bit about dogs. He talks about dolphins and sea lions and other animals. And it's just, it's super interesting. It's really easy to read, really easy to understand. You don't have to be a scientist to, to get this and... Um, I think it's awesome that we are now looking into all this stuff and there's a whole field of, of, of you scientists out there focusing on dogs and, and, and other animals. And I think it's a really great place to be as far as humans go. So thank you for your work. And, and as you continue to work, I look forward to, to learning about, you know, what else you discover. And uh, thanks also for your time today. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, thank you, Julie. I really enjoyed it as well. Good. All right, we'll be back next week, live Wednesday at 2 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes.
You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud.